0: Please stand for the reading of God's word.
1: Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted, them in, all, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which, water, from which to water the forest of growing trees. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that my hands, all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of God.
2: We're we're digging into Ecclesiastes chapter 2 right now. And this is a text of scripture, Ecclesiastes, that has a reputation for being depressing. But one of the things that we said last week is actually, this is a book of the Bible, which is designed by God to help us learn how to live with joy, hope, and wisdom in a world that has been badly broken by sin. So the way this works is that Ecclesiastes guides us away from some false paths that we might want to follow to try and find meaning for our life. And last week, you may remember, we used an illustration. I want you to bring it to your mind again. The illustration is that in your life, there's a big hallway, and you're looking down the hallway, and on both sides of the hallway, there's doors. Doors on this side of the hall, doors on that side of the hall. And each of these doors has a label. You can go into that door, to that room try and figure out what's the meaning of your life going to be. So one of them is labeled comfort. You can try and live a comfortable life. One of them's labeled greatness. You can try to live a great life. A life of ambition. But today the room that we're going into is a room called pleasure. So that's our key word. Everybody say pleasure. pleasure. And the teacher, the preacher who's speaking in this text is an old man who has learned some hard lessons in life and he's coming now to tell us I spent years and decades of my life inside this room called pleasure, and there was nothing there. There was nothing there to satisfy you. After we spend some time inside this room called pleasure, not only are we going to learn a lot about what is the meaning of true joy in life, we're also going to walk away from this room with a deeper understanding of what wisdom is. So that's our other key word. Everybody say wisdom. Today we're going to talk about pleasure wisdom and discipleship
0: so how do we know that we're in the room that's called pleasure well if you look with me in your bulletin you'll see in verse one these words i said in my heart come now i will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself so we see him saying in my heart i'm searching for pleasure there's that word look at verse 10 and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So we find ourselves in the pleasure room. But I want to make some observations about this because this sage is inviting us to watch him as he gives himself fully to a life of self-indulgence. We're invited to learn from his experiment of walking in the room of pleasure. I want you to notice first that this sage has unparalleled resources to throw himself himself into self-indulgence. He's a powerful king. He is incredibly wealthy. In fact, if you or I try to give ourselves to a life of self-indulgence, we would not be able to pull it off to the same scope that this guy did. It's as if God allowed this man to live his life, living out all of our wildest fantasies, and then come back and report what he saw, what the results were. If you look in verses 3 through 9 of your text, you'll see the full extent of this pleasure project. And what you're going to find is that this sage enjoys massive wealth he enjoys unparalleled power he has widespread pain, fame excuse me he gives himself to creative work on a massive scale he enjoys really good food and really good drink he has beautiful music he has the unlimited capacity to fulfill every sexual fantasy that he has and he's got a massive estate full of gardens and pools and streams And fruit trees to do it in. And after plunging into all this self-indulgence, he also gives us the result. Look with me at the end of verse 1. Behold, this also is vanity. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now last week, we said this word vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. And hevel means smoke. It means mist. It means vapor. So after spending his, his life in this room of pleasure, the sage tells us it was pleasure. It was smoke. I couldn't grasp it. Look down with me at verse 11. It says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, hevel, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here's the thing, a life that's devoted, this man devoted his life to pleasure. And within a few minutes, we get used to it. What comes up
2: often comes down. If we attain the object of our desire, we quickly lose interest in it. Find ourselves satisfied, deprived of our original appetite, and so end up with boredom. No valued object lasts for very long, and final satisfaction forever eludes us. Hevel. you search out for the object of your desire when you get it. It's happy, it's fun, it's exciting for a little bit, then the pleasure fades. So you go searching for something else. But the second time around, it doesn't keep you as happy for as long, does it? The law of diminishing returns. Now, it's almost impossible to teach young people this. We should learn from our experience, though. Anybody as a kid ever make your, your Christmas wish list and not get everything you want? Catch what we're chasing, but when we do, we grab for it, and it's like vapor. We can't get a grip on it. This phenomenon is one of the reasons why Ecclesiastes keeps making me think of a philosopher that I quoted last week. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once made this statement. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So now I'm in my late 30s. When I look back on junior high, I'm like, oh, I get it now. It's a lot that I was not understanding at that season of my life. When I look at my 20s, I've got a different perspective now than I did before. And probably when I'm in my 50s and 60s and 70s, I'm going to look back at this season of my life and be like, oh, I see it now. So part of what's happening in this book of Proverbs is God's allowing this this man, the sage, the preacher, the teacher who has lived this way for a long time to come back from the end of life and tell us what he found there. And what he says is, I chased the dream called pleasure, called self-indulgence, all the way to the end. I satisfied every desire. And the more I satisfied the desire, the more empty I was. At the end of the road, there was nothing but death. And he walked back down the road to say to us, that's a dead end. You're not going to find the meaning of your life there.
0: I can relate to this Hevel. Many of you guys know that I spent 10 years in the classroom as a high school teacher. And when I first got into teaching high school, it was like I wanted to be Joe Clark. Some of you don't know who Joe Clark is. If you go back and watch the movie Lean on Me, you'll know who Joe Clark is. Joe Clark is the principal in New York who changes people's lives, and he's known as this educator who deeply impacts the lives of students. And I want to be Joe Clark. And, you know, by God's grace, God made me a teacher that I was well respected. I, I I impacted some kids. But, you know, the reality is, is that throughout those 10 years, every time I set my heart on I got to be this educator that has um, renown and honor and, and it's well known in the community and it's known to be a good educator. The more and more I did that, the more tired I got. The more weary I got, the less sleep I got, and I wasn't a very kind person because teachers started getting in my way, students started getting in my way of being a good teacher. It's heavy. I spent about a decade longer than I wanted to as a single guy, and I was dreaming about wooing some girl and starting this life of. Marriage and all this. And God has blessed me with a a great marriage. On the 16th of this month, we celebrated six years. Praise the Lord. But you know what? Even though Morgan and I would say we have a really good marriage, our marriage isn't a place where our soul is satisfied. It doesn't fulfill the longings of our souls. It's good, but it was never meant to be that good. Even now as a as a pastor, there's these old thought patterns that come back that say, Man, I gotta be this speaker, like ugh. I gotta I gotta be able to be this disciple maker, like, uh <laughs> And you know what? It it whenever those thought patterns come, I'm sure they come for you, they come for me. You know what we gotta do? Crucify that mud. Gotta crucify it. Because it doesn't lead to lasting joy. Mm-hmm. And actually it doesn't actually lead to lasting fruitfulness. Because if I'm so concerned about what's going on in other people's heads about what they think about me, I'm not really loving them. Hevel, I know about this journey. So this raises the question, are we supposed to just give up on pursuing joy? I think the Bible's answer to that is a resounding No. We just finished walking through Philippians, in which Paul says, rejoice, 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 mm-hmm. right? Galatians 5.22 says, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Over, the, over this whole season of COVID, Romans chapter 14, we've gone back to over and over again. And in chapter 14, verse 17, it says, but the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the problem in this text is not that the sage is pursuing joy. The problem is that the sage is is pursuing joy in the wrong way. That's right. He's trying to satisfy his stu- his soul with stuff that is too small to bring him lasting delight. Which reminds me of a uh, a sermon by C.S. Lewis called "The Weight of Glory." Now I want to read a portion of this of this sermon that is relevant for what we're talking about. C.S. Lewis says this: if we consider the un." Blushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels. Listen to that. Unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Mm. We are far too easily pleased, he says. If we want deep, lasting joy, the Bible is very clear about where we can find it. Very clear. Listen to these prayers from the Psalms. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Listen to this one. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At God's right hand, that's where pleasure is found. That's where deep, lasting joy is found. Listen to how Jesus describes the reward that awaits his faithful disciples. He says in Matthew 25, verse 23, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the way to find joy is to pursue God. But this alerts us to another issue. It's not just that the sage is trying to find lasting joy in little things that could never satisfy him. It's not the only issue. The objects of his desire were wrong, but the methods were also wrong, because Jesus is very clear. And he's emphatic about this particular paradox. Living a life of self-indulgence does not lead to lasting joy.
2: That's right, and Chauncey is now showing us the fact that over and over and over again, Ecclesiastes raises questions, and the only answer to the question is Jesus. That's right. In Jesus, in the gospel, in the call to discipleship, we find real joy. And now, as our reflections on joy have led us to Jesus, it's put us in a position to come back to this text and look for our other key word. I told you at the beginning there's two key words today. One's pleasure. But the other is wisdom. See, 1 Corinthians 1 says that Jesus is our wisdom. And Colossians chapter 2 says, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that needs to alert us to the fact that when we're reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's some stuff said about wisdom that should give us pause. Because throughout this text, the sage, the preacher, the teacher, tells us his heart is guided by wisdom. Okay, let let me show it to you in verse three. He says, I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. Now, does anything sound suspicious about that to you? My heart's guiding me with wisdom while I'm experientially laying hold on folly. That doesn't set your sensors off. Let me give you a scenario. Imagine that one of you, beloved church members, calls me up says, I want to meet you at Starbucks on 240 and tell you about a, a new plan that I have for my life. It's a great plan. And we go, sit down, we get our drinks. And you say, I've got a plan. I'm going to do a 20-year experiment. Now, hear me out. Wisdom is going to guide my heart the whole way. But what's going to happen is for 20 years, with wisdom guiding my heart, I'm going to pursue a life of total self-indulgence doing every foolish thing I can. Okay? I'm going to get really rich. I'm going to be really successful in my career. I'm going to sleep around with whoever I want to and, and pursue um, lots of money. And I'm going to exploit a lot of people along the way. And then I'm going to write a memoir about my experience that I think will really help a lot of people. What do you think about that plan? Question. As a pastor, I've never been in this experience... Do you think I should say, that's a great plan? Guys, that's a horrible plan. Don't do that, right? You can't, if you read Proverbs, one of the things you'll learn is that you can't let your heart be guided by the wisdom of God while taking hold of folly. So this this raises questions for us about what's really going on here in this text. Craig Bartholomew, the Old Testament scholar, argues persuasively that the text is using the word wisdom ironically. And if we want to understand what's really happening here, we can compare what's what's happening here with what Proverbs, for example, says about wisdom. Let me read a few verses to you. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the beginning of true wisdom is worshiping God, reverencing God. And the goal of wisdom is knowing the Holy One Knowing God. Proverbs 15.33 adds to this by saying, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So the more that we reverence and worship and love God, the more our hearts get humble before God and before other people. Because one of the things Proverbs teaches about wisdom is that there's a spiritual core to wisdom. We worship God. We fear God. We love God. And that causes us to recognize that every single human being on the planet, possesses sacred dignity because we're all made in the image of God, which means if we really worship God, we're going to love other people. And if we don't honor God, we're not going to honor other people. So, for example, Proverbs fourteen thirty one says this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So according to Proverbs, wisdom is God centered. It's a God centered life. And then that God-centered life has ethical implications. It teaches us to treat other people with generosity, with justice, and with self-giving love. Now, if we come back to Ecclesiastes 2 and ask the question, where is the fear of the Lord here? The answer is, it's missing in action. But if God is not the center to what's, what's driving the motivations of the Satan during these life experiences, what is? Well, the, question, the answer to that question becomes clear. As we read the text again, I want to just skim through verses four through nine again, emphasizing to you some some words that are repeated for for emphasis here. Look at verse four. He says, I planted vineyards for myself. Verse five, I made myself gardens. Verse six, I made myself pools. Verse eight, I also gathered for myself. So the text is saying over and over, I, I, I. Myself, myself, myself. See, this person is walking in a a wisdom, a worldly wisdom, which is shrewd, it's smart, it's savvy, it's self-aware, it's skilled at achieving whatever goals I desire. But the center of motivation is not God. The center is myself. It's a fake wisdom. It's a pseudo-wisdom. Now, if I haven't all the way convinced you yet, we could compare what this text says with other passages of Scripture. Let me just indicate to you a couple of places that you could go. We could go back to Deuteronomy, because chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes identifies the sage as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, Deuteronomy tells us a lot about what God expects from the king in Jerusalem. And Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, in particular, give the blueprint. I'm not going to read all those right now. You can go look them up this week. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. But I can summarize for you. Here's what it said. The king in Jerusalem is supposed to, number one, don't store up a bunch of silver and gold for yourself. Number two, don't gather a bunch of wives for yourself. Number three, meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Number four, so that you can have a humble heart which serves other people instead of growing arrogant and using your power to exploit other people. Now, if you take that list from Deuteronomy 17 and you bring it back to Ecclesiastes chapter two, what you'll find is that this king is doing the exact opposite of everything God said to do. Right. Now, we can understand even more profoundly the depths of what's happening here if we Go back even further to the opening passages of Genesis, because Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is consciously echoing some language and some themes that are there in Genesis 1 and 2. There is a
0: pleasure garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And so much between what this worldly wisdom is and what God's divine wisdom is. The two words are wine and great. So we'll start with wine Look back with me in your bulletin at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 3. We read this, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, we'll stop there. Now, in, in Psalm 104, verse 15, God says that wine is a gift from him that gladdens the heart of man. But over and over and over again in scripture, we also see admonitions, warnings about the overindulgence in wine and about the abuse of wine. And the passage that that is specifically relevant to this passage is one that we find in Proverbs chapter 31. Now, in Proverbs 31, the first few verses, we see the mother of a king, mother of King Limwell, giving him some counsel. And in verse 4 and 5, she says some things that are really relevant to our text. If you have a physical Bible, you can flip over like two pages to your left and you'll find it. But it says this. It is not for kings, O Limwell. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Listen to why she says this. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. This is a greatness that has nothing to do with godliness. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in the New Testament, second book of the New Testament. Chapter 10, Jesus is going to compare the world's greatness to greatness in God's kingdom. Listen to what he says in verses 42 through 45 of Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But... It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came that is smart, savvy, sophisticated. It'll get you the results that you want, but it will ultimately lead to death. It won't lead to lasting joy. And we are made, you and me are made to have something much bigger and much better at the center of our lives. We were not meant to be at the center of our lives. God was. So we can try to
2: gather up all these ideas and bring them back home to finish today. Ecclesiastes is complicated, isn't it? It's a book that God gave us that provokes thought and makes us ask questions and dig in deeper. But we can sum it up like this. God has, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this sage, this teacher, this King of Jerusalem, to come to us now as an old man and point to a room. You see, in Jesus, we find the wisdom of God incarnate. In Jesus, we find true and lasting joy. In Jesus, we find true greatness. Everything about his life shows us the wisdom and the joy and the greatness of God. And it shows us our path to wisdom and joy and greatness. Not only that, it shows us the solution to our folly and our selfishness. Because probably, if we're spiritually alive, if we have a, which shows people the goodness of God. Now, all of us are different places on our spiritual journey. If you're here right now and you know that you are not right with God, here's the first step. Just right now confess, Jesus, I've been a fool. Jesus, I've been selfish. I need to, you to forgive me. I trust in you. You're the king. And one practical way then that you can show that is by being baptized. In your baptism, you're showing. I'm dying to my old way of life with Christ and I'm rising with Christ to pursue a new kind of wisdom, a new kind of joy, a new kind of greatness. But for Christians, we need to remember that choice of the door. Remember the analogy, we're in the hallway, there's a bunch of doors. The choice of the door isn't something you just do once and you're done with. Every day you get to wake up and choose which door you're going to go into. And in the Christian life, often we start to drift. We've been following Christ and then we start to put self back at the center And the call to repentance is the call, get self out of the center, put Jesus at the center. And one practical way we can do that is what we're about to do, take the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is giving himself to us and saying, I'll be your wisdom, I'll be your joy, I'll be your satisfaction, I'll be your pleasure, receive me, receive my life to be the center of your life. So let me me say a prayer for us now, that wherever we are on this journey, God will help us to put Christ at the center. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need your help because on our own, we make the same mistakes over and over again. But with you and your presence, there is fullness of joy. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in every heart right now. If if self is at the center, I pray that we would decenter ourselves and by faith put Christ at the center, so that we can know Your wisdom and Your joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.